So we have lots of very cute little kids in the church today, uh, which is very, very, it's a very good thing. And um, it's also Father's Day, by the way, which uh, I guess I'll have to say Happy Father's Day in case I forget to say it later on, (laughs) which would be quite likely to happen with me. One of the things which is interesting about young children, uh, obviously Caspar is not even close to that, is that at some point in time, uh, they start to become morally aware and are able to make wrong choices, like very self-consciously wrong choices. I don't know, and uh, those of you who have parents of young kids, you can maybe have a bit of a discussion about when that comes. I I think of it somewhere in their twos. You'll have a time uh, when the child is, you know, just playing around, and uh, and maybe there's something on a, a table or a counter that they're not supposed to touch. And they go wandering over to it, and, and you say to them, we'll just call, call it, we'll pretend it's a boy and his name is Bobby, and you say to, to say to Bobby, Bobby, you know you're not supposed to touch that. And, and here's the, up until then, you know, they just do whatever they're doing. They're just little, little tiny kids just doing whatever sort of pops into their heads. <laughs> and sometimes weird things pop into their heads or cute things. But this time you say, you know, Bobby, you, you know you're not supposed to touch that. And Bobby stops and looks at the parent. Like he, he looks at the parent. And you say again to the child, Bobby, don't touch that. You know you're not supposed to. And Bobby looks at the parent. And then Bobby touches the, the object. <laughs> and you know that Bobby has chosen to do something which is wrong. And that's something which happens to every child. In fact, if you met a parent who said that never happened to my child, <laughs> you might not say anything to the parent, but inwardly you know that that parent's just deluded. Um, because the fact of the matter is, is that there always comes a time when a young child will gratuitously, no, it's a big word, but gratuitously, freely, just choose to do something that's wrong. Now, Last week, I said a couple of things about the problem of evil, usually conceived as the problem of why evil exists in the world and what God does about it. But prior to that, there's a far, more, there's a far deeper, profound human question that most of us turn our eyes away from in terms of thinking about. And that is, why is it that you and I gratuitously choose to do things that are wrong? Like, if one of you says you don't do it, that just shows you're not self-aware. But the fact of the matter is, is that every single one of us, even the best, will have times when we know it's wrong. There's no, nothing forcing us. It's not like, you know, I don't know, we have to steal because we're starving to death. It's, you know, not because we have guns pointed to our head and, you know, we have to make some terrible moral choice or anything like that. There are, in fact, every single one of us have times where we just freely, knowingly choose to do something that's wrong. We do. Why is that? What is it about human beings that that is part of what makes a human being a human being, at least today. Part of the problem is that it's hard for us to think about this and come to an answer to it without being demoralized, without thinking that there's just... It's hard for us to bear the idea that there's just something in us which is just broken in a way like that. 
and, uh, and so it's demoralizing, so we don't, we don't think about it. And most of the time what we just do is we pretend it's not there, it's not an elephant in the room, and, and, uh, or, or we pretend that it's not really something that happens to us very often because we're very good at making excuses for the wrong that we do and don't want to acknowledge that we have an opportunity to forgive and we choose not to forgive. We have an opportunity to, to let go of resentment and we choose not to let go of resentment. We have a chance to, 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 to help another person and we just choose not to do it. And, and we don't like to, that's not something that we like to think about as being true to us. The story that we're going to look at today, and it's, uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20, and as I, I sort of said in my prayer, it's a, on the surface, it's a very, very simple story. But it's actually, a, some simple stories can be very deep and profound. Um, I know I might be igniting a few people by saying this, but the fact of the matter is, is that depth psychologists like Freud and, and Jung have often gone to some of these very ancient stories in the book of Genesis to mine their depths. In modern days, Jordan Peterson's lectures on some of these stories have gotten in the millions in terms of views, have seen, in a sense, the profound depth in these very simple stories. And we're going to look at one of these very simple stories, and it points the way forward to thinking about the evil that we do, the wrong that we do, in a way that won't lead us to pretend and won't demoralize us. So, if you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20, and um, last week I I borrowed uh, something that I learned from an Australian Anglican scholar by the name of John Woodhouse telling the story in terms of scenes, and I think I'm going to do that again this week. So, scene number one, trusting in lies to protect you. That's what scene number one is called, trusting in lies to protect you. Verses 1 and 2. From there, uh, that is uh, where he'd been, like by the tree and and sort of close to Sodom and and Gomorrah. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. Uh, He's sort of going south, closer to Egypt. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the, the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. Uh, which was an important uh, center for caravan routes uh, where there was water, etc., and so people would stop there. It was an important uh, resting spot in a, in a city. So, so he, he journeyed, sojourned in Gerar, and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So the implication here is that uh, Abimelech uh, takes Sarah to be one of his wives, to be in his harem. And what we see here right off the bat is that what Abraham has done is he's lied in a way to protect himself. We're going to discover in a few scenes why it is that he, in his own self-consciousness, why he is that he chose to lie. But one of the things which is very interesting here, I've, I've talked to many people over the years who've said, you know, if God really wanted me to know him, why doesn't he just reveal himself to me in a way which is very blatant and obvious? And if he just revealed himself to me, then I would believe in him. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that the, the Bible shows time and time and time again that that is rarely true. What has just gone on before this is the most, an un, just a spectacular and in, in many ways, horrific demonstration of the existence of, of God with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
with the land being destroyed and, and the smoke going up into the, into the heavens. And Abraham knew that God was going to do this, and, and God did it. And, and, and very few people on the history of the planet have ever had a more remarkable demonstration of the existence of God. And yet very shortly after this, Abraham is not trusting in God to protect him, but decides that he will trust in lies and deception for him to be protected. And in fact, one of many of us could start to wonder, and this is going to be one of the main questions as this story pro- progresses, if Abraham lies and deceives to protect himself, why on earth would God choose him as somebody special? Like, why would God choose a liar to be the, the founder of the promised people? Like, that is actually wrong. Like, that's just wrong that God would do that. Scene two, the Lord intervenes. Look at verse three. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. Because, actually, it's funny, that, like, that's what it says in, the, in the Hebrew. You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. In other words, they hadn't had sexual relations. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my, and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So the Lord intervenes to speak to Abimelech in a dream. And one of the things that we discover here is that not only has Abraham lied, but Sarah has lied. They've been partners in lying and deceiving. Now, there's another big question here, which some of you might not know, but others who've been following along knows. And that is this. Sarah is 89 years old. Now, I hope to get to that age, (laughs) and probably in my own eyes, I'm still going to be a good-looking chap (laughs) at 89. But there's a type of obvious question, why on earth did Abimelech choose an 89-year-old woman to be his wife? So just very, very briefly, uh, part of what's going on here in the story is this. The story is going to maintain time and time and time again that the birth of Isaac in fulfillment to the promises of God's saying that he's going to start to bless the nations through this line. It's going to be shown time and time again that Abraham and Sarah contributed nothing, that it's completely and utterly a miracle of God. In fact, not only that, that Abraham and Sarah continually sabotage what God wants to do, which is what they're doing right here, that what's going to happen? Abraham leaves, and now he can't take his wife with him because now she's with Abimelech. How's, how on earth is Isaac, the promised child of, of Abraham, going to happen? So they actually constantly act in ways which undermines God doing something. So it's going to be very, very clear that only God was able to accomplish this. The, sec- the second thing is, and, and this is probably part of it, is that God's desiring God's plan to create a line through which the entire world will be blessed and which salvation will come, he seems to have acted in a way so that many of these early patriarchs live far longer lives than they normally had. But there's still a bit of a mystery here. The two stories previous to this, it takes very, very clear that Sarah has gotten too old. She's uh, she's menopausal. 
postmenopausal. She's, she's old. So I'm just going to suggest something here. You can take with it as you want. You can discuss it over coffee. You can think George is completely and utterly ridiculous. That's fine. But Abimelech wants to get married to Sarah. And I wonder if some of modern fiction is pointing to what maybe has happened here, that the miracle that's going on is God reverses Sarah's aging. In the very next story, the baby will be born. And I wonder if what's happening is that Sarah is, in a sense, going backwards in time from 89 to looking young enough and being young enough to bear a child. That's pure speculation on my part. You can do with it as you will. All I'm trying to do is piece together he chose a woman to marry. And in the very next story, she gives birth. Take with it as you want. The next scene is God's clear but confusing message, uh, verses 6 and 7. Then God said to uh, Abimelech in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife. Here's 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 the confusing bit. For he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, I'm not going to spend very much time on it. For some people, it's a shock that God might do something that might, he might kill. I guess all I want to do is that part of what's going on here, and it's going to continue throughout the rest of the Bible, is to try to help us to understand that God is not a labradoodle. God is not a labradoodle. He's not just a tame little pet that will follow you around. God is a consuming fire. He creates all things out of nothing. He sustains all things out of nothing. Heaven and earth flees from his presence. He is the transcendent and imminent God. He is uncreated and needs no environment. And if God was to reveal himself fully and completely to us, it would unmake us. And that is who the true and living God actually is. But the other part, which is this, is that prophet. Like, how could God choose Abraham to be a prophet? He lies. He's not good. Does this mean that God sort of enables his favorites? Does God sort of reward some people for living lies of deception? And it's going to even get worse as the story progresses. The Yuck factor of Abraham and Sarah is going to increase once we get a couple of scenes down. But first, scene four, the virtuous pagans. Look at verse eight. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Now, what what Abimelech is doing here is he's being very virtuous. 
he in fact does fear God uh, to the extent that he understands God. Uh, he's making clear that he would not have taken another man's wife. And he wants to make sure that there's a public airing of this so there is no appearance of evil and there's going to be restitution. Now, by the way, this is something that we need desperately in our country. Do we have, in fact, and I'm not picking on particular politicians, do we have a clear airing of things which they have done wrong? I have done something which is wrong. I apologize. And if necessary, I will resign. This is a consistent message to our country, and it's not just to politicians, but to people in churches and business and communities, where, in fact, you do not have this very clear public acknowledgement that something has gone on and a desire to clear it, to clear the air, to acknowledge responsibility, to make restitution, to make very clear what the right path is. And what we see here is that the pagans are virtuous and Abraham and Sarah are not. And we in Canada today could learn from the virtuous pagans in Gerar. And once again, we wonder to ourselves, why didn't God choose Abimelech rather than Abraham? Why didn't he choose a virtuous man rather than Abraham and Sarah? Well, as I said, it gets worse for Abraham and Sarah. Next scene, scene five, is deception and blame shifting. Verses 11 to 13. So Abraham answers Abimelech's questions. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. We see here the seeds of prejudice, don't we? The problem with, I don't know, the Irish. I'm Irish. The problem with the Irish, if you go to Ireland, they're just always looking to try to steal your stuff or take your stuff or just just pick your pick your racial group or your ethnic group or your... Your, your racial group, it's a, a standard part of prejudice that everybody there, they're just going to want to rip you off. They're just going to take advantage of you. And here we see Ab- Abraham's prejudice, despite the fact that the pagans, in fact, are more virtuous. And the other thing is, it's not as, in, in, in the original language, uh, when he says, and when God caused me to wander, what he's doing is blame-shifting. He's saying, listen, it's not my fault. God caused me to wander. And because God caused me to wander, I had to do all of these things to protect myself. He's blame shifting, trying to pass away his responsibility for his freely chosen doing of something which is wrong. And now even when he's confronted, he doesn't accept responsibility, but in fact doubles down on it and blames God for it. And then once again, how on earth could they pick Abraham and Sarah? He married his sister. Is the Bible saying that's all right? Like, is the Bible saying it's all right to marry your sister? I might not always have been clear about it. Occasionally, I've made these little references. Like, if you pick something like the Lord of the Rings, it's six books, 
And if you were just to try to, to read one story in the, in, the, in, the, in, in the first book and not read the rest of the story, you're not going to be able to interpret it correctly. Uh, for instance, not giving any spoilers, if you just took, if you skipped the beginning and, and end of, of book one and you just read a few of Boromir's speeches, you might understand, you might believe that he's a, a far better man than he actually was, but he actually does want to steal the ring. And, and the understanding that the depth of the problem only becomes more clear as you read all six books. And, and Genesis is book one of a five-book series, all written fundamentally, ultimately by Moses. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are a five-book series. And so if you just look at this story, if this was the only story, you'd have to say God says it's all right for a man, to, uh, for a, a guy to marry his sister. But if you read all five of the books, it becomes very clear that what Abraham and Sarah had done is wrong in God's eyes. I'm sorry it's not going to be up there on the thing, but if you have your own Bibles, if you turn to Leviticus, I'll just sort of show it to you. Leviticus chapter 18, uh, verse 9 and verse 11, uh, it says this, Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verse 9. Um, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or another, in another home. In other words, you shan't have, it's another way of saying sexual relations. And then it, if you go down to verse 11, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. Another language of sexual knowing. It's forbidden. And then again, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 22, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 22. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. So the Bible makes it clear that Abraham and Sarah are doing something that is wrong in God's eyes. Once again, how on earth are Abraham and Sarah worthy? Like, what's going on with God? Scene 6. Abimelech makes right. Turn to verses 14 to 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, to his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, now just notice this little dig. Um, Abimelech is making a very, very, even though he can argue that he's not been guilty of anything, he wants to make sure there's no appearance of evil. So he, he's going to make a, a gift of lots of, of, uh, of, of gold and, and servants. And he's saying there's no hard feelings. The whole land is before you. I want you to be able to stay. But he gets in the little dig. Notice the little dig. Verse 15, Behold, the land, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Verse 16, To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother, not husband. <laughs> I've given you a brother. A thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and for everyone that you are vindicated. At the expense to himself, he makes sure the other person is vindicated. Once again, profound lessons for how we should live today. And then finally, the final scene entitled, Why on Earth Abraham? Then verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. 
and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Abraham, Sarah's wife. Abraham's prayer worked in the sense that Abraham prayed and God said yes. Occasionally, uh, people, when they find out I'm a minister, uh, they might say something like, we're having a picnic this afternoon. If uh, you could do something, uh, if you could pray for good weather, I'd really appreciate it. And I always say, I'm in sales, not management. My prayers don't work any better than yours. And then I'll usually say, my wife is closer to management than I am. Maybe you should ask her to pray. So we tend to have a thought here, though, isn't it? That, in fact, that um, uh, that, uh, if we're closer to God, God will answer our prayers. So what on earth is going on here in this particular story? He, He prays as a prophet, and God says yes. So, it's very easy to look at this and say this is just the problem with religion and religious texts. That what goes on in religion is that there's one rule for me and other for thee. That's not just a problem for religion. It's a problem in politics. It's a problem in, 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 soci- in, in university faculties. It's a problem in, in media establishments and in, in, and in businesses one rule for me, another for thee. And I, as soon as I say that, all of you can think of instances where it's the case. But it seems to often be the case in, in religious institutions. One rule for me, another for thee. Um, and how on earth can, can you say, George, that God is showing mercy and grace to Abraham if, 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 if Abraham has been doing very, very bad things? And it's not mercy and grace if it's unjust or un- unfair or, or wrong. Abraham is, is undeserving. And, and if Abraham is undeserving, then it, it's wrong for God to, to favor him. It, it's, it, you know, you can't have mercy and grace if there's injustice, if there's favoritism. You, you can't just sort of pick, it's, it's just, George, you know, if, if, if it was bad if, if, if when Trump was leaving office and he, he, he lets his crony, he gives last second, um, you know, get 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 them get them out of jail and and declares them innocent for their cronies, and it'll be just as wrong if Biden does it at the end of his term. If in, in his final week, he just starts taking all of the guys who are his golfing buddies and his campaign donors, and he just makes their criminal charges go away, and that's just wrong. And this seems like that's what's going on here, and it's just wrong, George. And if after reading the story, you think that, that's a good thing. So I just want to talk about three types of things to try to help us to understand why this story is deep and profound and why it's in the Bible. And here's the first thing. There is, this Bible text reveals to you and me that there is a natural or common There's a natural spiritual imagination where there's a natural religious intuition. There's something which is common to almost all human beings about how spiritual and religious things should work. It's, it's, It's how our imagination works. It's a profound institution, intuition, and it's common to all. And it's common to every religion. And in fact, many versions of Christianity 
are in fact times when people forget what the gospel is and just allow the natural religious spiritual intuition and imagination reread the text and and so christianity becomes a form of this natural imagination about how religion and spirituality should work and if if you could put up the first slide that would be really good hopefully you can see it Uh, and those of you watching online it'll be at the bottom and and here it is i call it the um uh what do i call it here i call it the um uh, I think I have the no, I have the right thing. I call it the natural spiritual imagination. I think I just called it that. And here's the thing. Here's how it works. First of all, you start doing better. Then you start being spiritual or engaging in spiritual things. And then as you proceed along, because you're doing a better and better, you're living a better and better life, and you're you're getting better at, at doing spiritual or religious things. You come to the point where God accepts you. Uh, which I guess we could call salvation. And um, you, you see that in Christians as well. You have a person who used to be a, a practicing Christian and, and they have been away for a long time and they start to feel like maybe they need to get back to church, but they can't come back to church because they've been living a very bad life. So they talk to you and they say, you know, I've been living a very bad life and not only I've been living a bad life, often I, I've been living an unsuccessful life, like my family's a little bit messed up. My business is a little bit messed up. And, um, and you know, frankly, I have some other problems. And so what, what, what we say is, well, once I start to do a little bit better, I'll come to church. And coming to church and then doing it, and then maybe as well they'll start to do a few other things, like this is just the Christian version. They'll start to read the Bible and they'll start to do a few other types of things. And then they're sort of doing better. They're, they're living a better life and they're more, have a more successful life. And, and they're going to church and doing religious things regularly. And the sense is that if you do those things, at some point in time, God accepts you. You're saved. And, and, and this is not just, this is like, it's the same, you know, with, 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 you know, whether it's Hinduism and the, the different types of rules that you need to follow and, and getting your life in order and, and then the spiritual practices so that you're going to do, you're, you're going to do better as a Hindu. Uh, you know, if, if I, I've talked to some people who are, you know, grew up Muslim and they've, they've left, they, they don't go to the mosque or anything like that and, and they like to drink a lot, which is wrong, and they, they eat pork sandwiches, which is wrong, and they sort of say, you know, I, I need to start getting some of those things under, under control, uh, stop watching porn and, and stop drinking beer, and, and once I do, maybe I'll start going back to the mosque, and, and I, I, I start to do those religious practices, and it's the common way that the religious imagination works, and it's the way we judge Abraham, right? Like, how on earth could Abraham be God's prophet? Why? Well, because the way our mind naturally works is that if you're going to be a prophet, like, that's like a really high-level acceptance by God, so surely you've got to get your life in order, and then after that, you've got to be doing the religious practices. And if you're doing all of those things, then eventually you're going to be able to be sort of like a prophet, like high up up here, because that's just the way it works. You, dude, God, you don't choose a prophet, a guy who married his sister. Like that's just, that will never happen. That's just, that goes against how we understand religion and spirituality. It's, it goes against our imagination. It goes against our intuitions. It's, it's just wrong. And it's wrong whether it's, 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 it's a bespoke spirituality, uh, you know, whether it's, it's a mystical thing, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, whether it's, it's Islam, you know, whether it's many forms of Christianity. 
And, and, and one of the reasons in our culture many people are re- rejecting religion is because they look at that and, and, they, and they just say, well, this doesn't, just doesn't work. You know, because fact of the matter is that, I don't know, because you see, there's an extra thing to that, that this is what should happen in our culture is that, okay, you know, I, I've lived a messy type of life and, you know, I, and my, my, my job's not going very well and, my, you know, there's problems in my marriage and all of that. I'm going to start getting some control over that. So I'm starting to do better. Now that I'm doing better, I, I can go to the mosque, I can go to the temple, I, I can go to the church. And, and after I start to do that and get involved in that, now I'm actually connected to God. And the result of that is going to be that God is now going to take care of me and bless me. And what often happens is then you get the cancer diagnosis for your mom. Then you don't get the promotion. Then your, the stocks that you invested in go, go belly up. And, and, and now you're mad at God because good grief, God, I was doing my part of the deal. I, good grief, I stopped watching the porn. I stopped drinking the beer. I'm going to church. And now this happens. Like, God, you let down your part of the deal. The second thing, the problem, there's a big problem. And the big problem is what I began the sermon with, the mystery of your wrongdoing. The mystery of your wrongdoing. Like, why is it? Why is it that you can have an opportunity, you get a phone call, and somebody says, I'd really like to pick you up. I'd love to treat you to a good meal, buy a a couple of beers, have a really good afternoon, and you say, no, because I'm going to watch porn. Like, I mean, you know what's wrong. Like, why would you do that? Like, I mean, good grief. You have your good friend just said he'll take you out, pay for your meal, you'll have a really good time. Like, that sounds wonderful. Like, why would you gratuitously do the other thing? And, and you, you can multiply it. Like, why is it that we do things like that? But why is it that the natural religious spiritual imagination pretends that that part of our doing wrong doesn't exist? Because the fact of the matter is that we sometimes gratuitously choose what is wrong. And no amount of depth therapy changes that. No amount of behavior modification changes that. No amount of finding... Uh, coaches who can give you techniques about human behavior, that doesn't change it. No amount of spiritual practices removes it. And given the fact that we have a part of us that just gratuitously do something which is wrong, it means that the natural spiritual imagination is doomed. It will never, ever work. To my Buddhist friends, you will never get enlightenment. To my Hindu friends, you will never stop the cycle of life and rebirth. Never. To my Muslim friends, it doesn't work. You choose to do wrong. So do I. So do you. Why is it that we cling to this religious model and we know that we choose wrong? And you see, what happens is, because we choose wrong, what do we do? 
we have one rule for me and another rule for thee. We become very, very good at blame shifting. We become very, very good at pretend. And what's the problem with blame shifting and pretending that we're far more righteous, far more together? I mean, in good grief, if there is ever an age where we have a problem with this, is people don't actually want to eat a good tasting cupcake. They want a good cupcake that will, they want a cupcake that will look on good on Instagram. Even if the cupcake or the donut at Tim Hortons at one-fifth the price is 20 times more tasty. We want the Facebook, Instagram, TikTok moment to make it look like things are good. And what happens? It makes us profoundly insecure. It makes us profoundly insecure. And we, we reject religion because it's just in image management. And it's hard for us to think of the fact that we do things which are wrong without being profoundly demoralizing. So the first thing is the natural way that our religious and spiritual imagination works. The second thing is the mystery of our wrongdoing. Isn't that what we see in the story of Abraham? We evaluate Abraham as being unworthy because of our natural religious imagination. We look at Abraham and see that he gratuitously chose to do what was wrong. The third and final thing is the subversive, the subversive fulfillment of the gospel. The subversive fulfillment of the gospel. By that I mean is the gospel subverts the natural religious imagination, but it fulfills our deeper desire to live a life that is right with God, that's transparent and honest and doesn't have to pretend that there's not a part of us that choose to do what's wrong. It's the good news that God subverts but he actually fulfills at a deeper level what we desire. If you could put up the final slide, the scandalous grace of the triune God. And the, the, the way the gospel works is there's an announcement. Abraham, you are a bad man. George, you are a bad man. But it begins with God accepting me as his child by salvation, by grace. I'll explain more about that in a moment. And then it leads from that to begin practicing the means of grace, which is another way, a better way, a gospel way of talking about religious observance. It's not religious observance. It's practicing the means of grace. And we begin with being accepted by God, completely and utterly undeserved. And it's from that place that we begin to live and practice the means of grace, and it's from that place that we become more and more convinced that it's important that not only do we do things like justice and mercy and compassion, but also that we write songs that are good and dance dances that are beautiful and 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 and, and start businesses which are, are are successful and 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 rise up in the civil service not as just a person who just puts everybody down, but to be known as a man and woman of integrity, that we start to do better. Once again, I, I, I don't have it in here, but remember that we're looking at the stories of Abraham, and within the stories of Abraham itself, there is a pointer at the very, very end, a very, very famous story 
of, of, of Abraham, and it's, it, we're going to be looking at it in, in, a, in two weeks' time, and it's in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, and it's the story of now Abraham has his child, and, 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 and Ishmael is gone, and it's only Isaac, and God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, your only son whom you love, and I want you to take him up onto the mountain, and I want you to kill him as a sacrifice for me. And Abraham goes and does it. And there's this very famous line that as they're going up the mountain and he's gotten rid of the servants, it's just Abraham and his, and his, and his, uh, and his son Isaac. And, and Abraham, it's verse 8 of chapter 22, or at verse 7, it goes, And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. And Isaac says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's famous answer is, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. At the end of the story, after Abraham is going to go and do it, there is a ram that is provided. And God reveals to Abraham he's not to kill his son. And there's a ram, not the lamb, but a ram. And then in the other stories, we're going to discover in the book of Exodus and in the book of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that there's to be the sacrifices. But as the story unfolds, because there's books after these first five that make up the 39 books of the Old Testament, there is this realization at a deeper and deeper level that the mere sacrifice of animals for a human being is not going to be sufficient. And then the very first historical record we have of Jesus is when John the Baptist says at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Abraham's not worthy by the religious imagination. He does wrong. He needs grace. And he needs grace that is also going to be at one with justice. And how is that the case? God looks at you and he looks at me. And I cannot be perfect. I choose to do wrong at different times. And so God provides for me in a way that I cannot provide for myself. He provides. I am made in the image of God. He takes the one of whom every human being is made in the image of. And that one who every one of us is in the image of. He takes flesh and becomes human being. And he lives amongst us. He becomes my representative. Who can better be my representative than he whose image I am made in? And he comes and dwells amongst us and knows every trial and temptation that you and I do only without sin. He knows the depth of temptation. I give in. He doesn't give in. He identifies with me even more deeply than I am able to experience myself. He, my representative, he identifies with me. He chooses to be my substitute to take my place so that the wrongdoing that I have done is dealt with in him, then he can do it. Why? Because he's my representative and he's identified with me. He knows what he's doing and he offers an exchange for him taking my doom, the destiny which he deserves. There is no sacrificing of God's justice, but mercy without sacrificing justice is greater than justice. And that is what God offers us in the person of Christ. And that's why the gospel subverts but fulfills the religious imagination. Jesus knew the wrong that I have done. And every wrong that I have done has been dealt with by him. 
and my standing with him is not on me being able to do right and not do wrong, and it's not by having one rule for me and another rule for other people, and it's not for by me being really, really good at jumping at other people for having specks in their eye while I have a log in mine. It's by me understanding that God knew the depth of the wrongdoing and everything about me when he died for when Jesus died for me on the cross it's all been dealt with and that means that week by week one of the means of grace is that I can gather with other brothers and sisters in Christ and we can gather around the Lord's table and we can remember that Jesus died on the cross that he shed his his blood that his body was pierced and he did this knowing the truth the mystery the secret the riddle the enigma of who I am and who you are and he knew that when he died for me and so I can confess my sins confident in his forgiveness I am not going to unearth anything in my past that is so terrible that will make God turn his eyes away from me because he died on the cross knowing the mystery and the depth of me and he did not turn away from me but he died for me and so I have a place where I don't have to pretend and it's really hard because I, I don't, I, I like pretending and I like having different rules for other people and I like seeing specks in other people's eyes and not noticing the logs on mine. I'm addicted to that. But week by week, as part of the means of grace, I can gather around the Lord's table. I can hear the word, make me aware of who I am in Christ and what I really am like in the depth of my heart and still know that Christ loves me. And I can start to look at the wrong that I've done and say, that is wrong, that is gratuitous. And I can start to have the self-possession and standing in Christ to say, yes, this week I've done this and yes, this week I've done this and I can't even begin to count them. And I'm sorry for them, but I am so thankful for grace. I'm so thankful for the cross. I'm so thankful for Christ. I thank you for these means of grace of, of reading your word and and of a common one another life with brothers and sisters and of, of the Lord's table and of, of the songs and that I can recommit. And once again, I can say, thank you, Jesus. You know, this week I had a chance to do justice and I chose to be silent this week. Lord, help me to do justice when I have that opportunity. I chose, I, I, I turned, I, I recommit. Help me to live in a way which spreads the gospel, which does good for this city, which brings you glory. I invite you to stand. If you're here or you're watching and if you've never given your life to Christ, it's no better time right right now to say, uh, Jesus, I... Now understand what it is that you've done for me on the cross, and I'm, I'm, I'm tired of being demoralized by my wrongdoing. I'm tired of play-acting. I'm tired of pretending. I'm glad that I can be honest with you, and honestly, I want you, Jesus, to be my Savior and my Lord, and I thank you that you will never let me go, and there's no better time than today to say that. And for those of us who are here in Christ, it's We can say, Lord, I am so glad that I can be here and in the quietness of my heart, but surrounded by my brothers and sisters. There will be a time for me later to say that I'm sorry for what I've done and to recommit to you to to, to be gripped by the gospel and to live in a way that brings you glory and recommit to the means of grace, the fellowship with other believers, whether it's one-on-one or mentors or small groups and and weekly meetings. I, I recommit. Thank you that you accept me, Christ. Thank you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, pour out the Holy Spirit upon us.
We ask that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us with gentle but very deep and penetrating power. We ask that you would help us to put to death our natural religious imagination and intuition, that you would grip us by the scandalous nature of your grace, that we would learn to live out of the promise of the scandalous, subversive fulfillment of your grace offered to people like me, and that you would help us to see the world from those perspectives and those eyes. And we ask, Lord, that you would do this wonderful work. We thank you for Jesus, and we ask it all in his name, and we say together, Amen.